At approximately 5.15 p.m. on May 10th in 1967, three boys ages 11, 13, and 14 explore a cave near their house in Mark Twain's hometown of Hannibal, Missouri. Brothers Billy Hogue, Joel Hogue, and friend Craig Dow are never seen again. Making the case go cold for over 50 years. Using the facts from 1967, we reopen the case for the Lost Boys of Hannibal. This is me, can you take another look? Did I see you looking blindly at your book? Is it all that you thought, that you thought it took? Can it be taken, taken at all? Were you looking for signs? Welcome back to the Lost Boys of Hannibal podcast. I'm your host, Frankie Cambaletta, and with me, as always, because I wouldn't have it any other way, Chris Ketters. Oh, there you are. Well, a little little pause there, buddy. I know we're a couple hours apart, but um, that felt delayed. <laughs> so how you been? How you holding up? Good. How are you? I'm good. It looks like, um, you know, one thing is ending and another thing is starting. So it's it's an interesting time to be in the cities, but uh, we're giving as much support as we can to the causes at hand and trying to get through these podcasts and, and trying to build new episodes that we believe are important to share in season two, as we've had to go on a little bit of a hiatus just to make sure that our material is staying strong. And during that hiatus, me and Chris was able to pick up a major communicator award, uh, which is an incredible honor for us, a 26-year-old show. We won Award of Excellence. And so for us, it was a huge thing to just kind of come through an email at one point and then kind of missing that. So that's huge for Lost Boys of Hannibal. We've had a spike in downloads and and more radio shows are coming. And so we're very excited about that. But at the same time, you know, you're only as good as your last episode. So we're trying to make every episode as important and informational. And so today we have a forensic psychiatrist joining us by the name of Dr. Brian Haloida. I'm welcoming him on the show, Chris, unless you had anything else before. No, no. Let's let's get right into it. Okay. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for thank you for being on. I know it's been a, kind of a touch and go and stuff like that, but um, so how did you get into forensics? So um, I attended medical school at Northwestern in Chicago, and after my first year of medical school, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and I started meeting with the folks in the different divisions of the medical school. And when I met with a person in psychiatry, she asked me what my interests were outside of school. And I told her that I was interested in crime and the darker aspects of human behavior. Um, And she referred me to meet with the forensic psychiatrist at Northwestern who worked at the, um, the county jail in Chicago, which I think maybe one of the largest jails in the country. Yeah, it's certainly one of the largest. So my first exposure to psychiatry ever was in the Cook County Jail. Oh, boy. And (laughs) there I was fascinated by the interviews with patients and some of the issues that arise within the criminal justice system as it relates to mental health. 
So following that first exposure, I learned more about forensic psychiatry. And 10 years later, I now work primarily in jails and I do forensic evaluations um, for the court system. Do you find it kind of, I don't know, interesting that your first real look into crime would be in Cook County where you have, of course, one of the notorious serial killers of all time and John Wayne Gacy. Did it ever come up while you were kind of, you know, doing your, your tribal like learning? Um, that's actually kind of funny. Um, so when I was going to medical school, uh, the medical school for Northwestern is in downtown Chicago, but I was living out, uh, near the suburbs by O'Hare airport. And I actually lived only half a mile from John Wayne Gacy's, uh, former address Oof, I just got oh, wow. goosebumps. that's cool <laughs> so so i i made a point of walking by and trying to see it i think that the house has been demolished at mm. least the um it's been rebuilt no yeah ex- the, the address right. no longer exists so correct that's kind of ironic um but yeah i i was always interested in serial killers and um those sorts of movies and books and things like that but I also lived not too far from his uh, burial ground, I guess you might call it. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. and so for our audience, too, because clearly I, I stumbled on psychology versus psychiatry. Psychiatry usually has a medical license to practice medicine and to also prescribe drugs, correct? Is that really the dividing line? Um, no. I mean, that's certainly one of the clearest ways to make a distinction, but... Um, psychiatrists are physicians, so we all go to medical school, we all get exposure to the various disciplines of medicine, like surgery, um, general medicine, OBGYN, everything. Um, Whereas psychology can mean a lot of different things. Um, There are folks who get PhDs in psychology and do research in a very focused area of psychology. Um, There are also psychologists who get PhDs and want to do therapy, so I think they're called clinical psychologists in general. Um, so psychologists do can do very different things, um, and the training's a very different perspective. Psychiatry is a medical discipline, whereas psychology tends to be more of like an academic or research type discipline. Awesome distinction, and I'm glad I'm glad we cleared that up because that does the full weight of that is is huge, especially for the the, the job and the work that you've been doing. Um, over the past couple of years, uh, you said that you were licensed in, in Missouri, in California, and you're going for your Nevada where, where you currently reside. Um, yes. That's that's incredible. So congratulations on all those achievements. That that's that blows me away. I mean, you seem very young, too. So it's, it's just <laughs> awesome to have you on the show and and to kind of have your knowledge. But I think that what I really drawn to as a creative is the passion that you seem to have for. Um, the human mind from this perspective, I think that a lot of people, I guess, can be a little judgmental up front. Like, why would you want to learn about that? But it's such an important piece of of humanity. I think that if we understood criminals and we understood why crimes take place more, we're able to kind of bridge the gaps between either preventative stuff or understanding how to stop it from, you know, the product of the environment that these people are coming up in. And so... That's, I guess, what we'll, we'll, Chris will kind of go through you with some of the questions that we kind of threw at you, but we wanted you to have some time to look at those and then listen to our show. And I guess that's my next question. So you listened to the first season of Lost Boys of Hannibal. What's your take? Because um, we gave a lot of people a lot of information, and I know you don't have to be aware of the timeline. 
don't worry about that. We kind of want you to get into the gist of um, what what are your t- what's your take on it? What what do you think and feel? And it doesn't have to be solidified. It could just be like, well, it could go a bunch of different ways. Well, to be perfectly honest, listening through the first season, I, I didn't find a lot of compelling evidence that there was foul play. Um, it, you know, it's certainly something to consider and a possibility, but um, when I'm evaluating somebody and I'm either making a diagnosis or trying to come to some sort of conclusion about um, the legal issue at hand, I'm always looking for evidence. And I need to have evidence in order to be able to back up any claim that I make, um, whether it's a diagnosis or sure. whether it's saying somebody was insane at the time they committed a crime. And um, again, I'm not as familiar with all the information pertaining to the Lost Boys as you guys are. But um, through my first listen through the first season, I didn't see a ton of super compelling evidence that they had been abducted or um, murdered or something like that. Sure. You would really want, you would certainly need something um, compelling to be able to, to make a claim like that. Um, well, let me, so that's, let me, that's okay. So that's my, that's sort of my initial take on it. Did, did you get involved? Did, did you, I know you said you listened to season one. Did, were you able to dig into uh, um, our, um, um, our, what Ray Farrier character at all? Did, were you, did you listen to that episode? Um, I, did I don't recall specifically? Okay, he was the one with the the odd the odd letters that we received or that they received the family received. Yeah, and it, it's hard to know if that somebody, you know, what the motivation would have been for that type of behavior. Um, it's just difficult to say. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, we don't want you saying anything either. I mean, because. The fact of the matter is, is that like it's the same place that kind of me and Chris always land. It always feels like we go back and forth and we flip flop and we have our little statistics and we're trying to uncover certain things. And, you know, I mean, we've we've mentioned Occam's Razor a thousand different times. I mean, the the thing that just really strikes me as odd is the last time they're seen versus the last the first person, the first place they looked versus, you know, all the different things that that could have transpired, but that, but that's essentially it. I mean, you can't go to a court of law with this could have happened, right? I mean, thank God there are laws in place that protect us from, you know, that type of, uh, you know, evidence is uh, at the very least <laughs> something you would need to bridge that gap. So, yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about your daily, your daily work then. Um, now that we've kind of opened up the, the can, like, what is, what is a day in the life of um, Dr. Holoy to look like? So clinically, I primarily work in jail settings. Um, That's what I was doing in St. Louis. I worked at a jail much of the time that I lived in Sacramento, and I'll be working at a jail in the Bay Area starting later this month. Um, And that's clinical work. So I see patients. um, The patients are typically screened by some sort of uh, mental health worker, whether that's a social worker or somebody else, to see if they really need a psychiatric evaluation. Um, And jails are detainment centers where people go um, pre-trial. So uh, people can be there for many years if they are in the course of murder proceedings, or sometimes people come in, sleep a night off in the drunk tank, and then leave. So jails have a high rate of turnover, and because they're 
sort of the admitting facilities into the criminal justice system, you see a wide breadth of different types of people. Um, so I have patients who are simply intoxicated with something and appear psychotic. So for example, methamphetamine, and then in a few days, they're back to their normal selves. Um, I see patients who have a primary psychotic disorder like schizophrenia, and they've ended up in the ju criminal justice system, and they need long-term treatment while in that setting. And then, of course, you see folks who become depressed or anxious while they're incarcerated, either because they're incarcerated or for some other reason. And so I see them as well. So that's what I do clinically on a day-to-day -day basis in a jail setting. Um, I also do forensic evaluations, uh, as I mentioned before. A lot of times when I say that, people think that means that I talk to dead people, which it's not. That's not what forensic means. Oh, come um, on, Brian. You could have given us something here. We have a paranormal <laughs> show, too. <laughs> so, so forensic psychiatry simply means doing psychiatric evaluations that relate to a legal issue. So okay. common criminal evaluations would be things like um, competency to stand trial. So that's assessing whether or not somebody is able to work with their attorney or whether or not they're able to actually participate in their legal proceedings. Um, people often throw around the word insanity, which is a forensic psychiatric term, or it's a legal term, excuse me, um, that refers to whether or not the person is criminally responsible for their behavior on the basis of whether or not they had a mental disorder at the time um, that was active. Uh, I specialized in the evaluation of sex offenders. So I do specialized sex offender evaluations and I continue to do those in Missouri every now and then. Um, and that primarily involves assessing a person's risk for violence if they were released into the community. So those are all criminal evaluations. There are also various civil legal issues for which a forensic psychiatrist may be involved, like emotional harm or um, employment issues, things like that. Well, and that, that's that's a perfect segue into our discussion, too, talking about the possibility of, of molestation. Um, and I kind of want to dig into some of those questions that we we, we sent to you. And I, I think that kind of leads off my first thought. Have you ever heard of a case or heard of any scenario where you've had a single person that has molested multiple children in one one instance? Have you ever heard of anything like that? So... That's very rare. Um, when you sent me these questions, I wanted to make sure not only that I was giving you an opinion, but an informed opinion. So um, I was actually able to find published data on uh, child abduction. And the largest study that's been conducted so far um, was published in 2015. And it looked at um, around 20,000, excuse me, uh, nearly 30,000 reported child abductions between 1995 and 2013. So this is the largest reported study uh, pertaining mm. to child abductions in this wow. country. And um, what they found, the authors uh, found that, excuse me, they were able to break out these 30,000 abductions on the basis of the number of victims and the number of offenders. And um, having multiple victims with a single abductor was very rare. Most common is having one abductor and one victim. That is uh, usually about two thirds of cases. 
And then in cases uh, where there were multiple victims, it was only about uh, 16% of cases that they found. So 16% seems in, in all the scenario though, 16% actually seems kind of high in my opinion, um, just because it's so, because it would, in my opinion, it'd be so difficult for, for one abductee or one abductor to abduct multiple individuals at one time, 16%. I don't know, Frankie, that feels high to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, and once again, like we've said this, expressed this a lot on the show is that like, we, we don't want to speak to things that Brian, uh, uh, do you go by Dr. Holoido? Do, do you prefer that? Cause I know that's a thing. I mean, cause I can call you Brian, <laughs> but I, I don't want to disrespect, you know, your title or anything like that. Cause that's, that's a hard earned title there. Yes. You know, so uh, I'm not offended either way. You can uh, you can call me Brian or you can call me Dr. Holoida. Okay, well, Dr. Holoida, I think it just sounds it just sounds better because you've done so much work to, <laughs> yeah. to be where you are. So, um, but yeah, one of the things, one of the reasons why like we have experts on is because like you know to the broad audience here, um, you know, 16 percent like it jumps out on us like Jesus, you know, like that's that's I would that's terrifying because I you know I have a child and and. You know, and we, we guard our children the most we can, you know, from these predators. And uh, one of the relations, I mean, are you seeing data that points to family members? Are, are, is there anything like that? Right. So that is the most common type of child abduction. And um, <clears throat> authors who have done research in this area, <clears throat> they always note that family abductions are the most common type. Um, so in that study of 30,000, um, they found that half were committed by family members wow. and then only about a quarter were committed by strangers. Um, excuse me, less than that, uh, 15% were committed by strangers. Um, so when you break it out that way, though 30,000 reported child abduction sounds like a lot half of those are related to family conflicts. So whether that's some sort of custody dispute or, some sort of family dynamics a person will get reported. It's much less common that it's a stranger who is abducting the children, only 15%. Um, but despite that, it's still roughly the same percentage of those stranger abductions um, where there's uh, one offender and multiple children being abducted. So it's still somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of those cases yeah and i see what i see where your connection's at there so you could almost make an argument that because um you're you're at 50 percent of family being abducted by a family member that a good percentage of that 16 percent that we were talking about is most likely because it's a dad maybe a mom or a dad either situation that's taking two kids so that's where you're that. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot more sense now. That's where that connection happens. I am curious uh, with this report that you had, you said that out of the 30,000, 50% were by family and 15% were by strangers. That that leaves me with, uh, if my math's right, 35%. What about, is there another statistic on where those 35% come in at? Yes. So this was the only study that broke out the relationship into four different categories. So okay. Older studies would break it out into family, um, strangers, and acquaintances, but this one also looked at intimate partners. So, um, you know, a 16-year-old child who's dating somebody a little bit older um, and being abducted. So acquaintances accounted for a quarter, so around, oh, wow. 20, okay. around 27%, okay. and then intimate partners only account for around 10%. They are the least. Huh. So this, yeah. So the, I guess the stranger really becomes the the rarest. I mean, in 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 some cases, I mean, do police, 
So the police or, or detectives, and it's so hard to talk about justice systems right now, but when they're going after or when they're investigating in something, is that the reason why they tend to look at families and acquaintances first than anything else? Well, I think I'm no police officer. I'm not involved at that um, moment in any sort of criminal act. But yeah, I think you want to rule out the most likely uh, possibilities first. And if most likely is family or acquaintances, you're going to look at the family members and acquaintances of the missing kids first um, before you start going down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out if a stranger was responsible. So just like deductive reasoning at, at that point comes into play a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the same thing in medicine and psychiatry. You know, you want to look, if somebody's presenting with certain symptoms, you're going to consider, you know, the most common or the most likely scenario before you start looking at um, other potential explanations for why somebody is presenting right. the way they are. Exactly. That's so. That was for doc, Dr. House in that show. <laughs> it was just Right. Yeah. He always looks for... In medicine, we call those the zebras. He was always looking for the <laughs> the explanation for the the strange presentation. Right. Okay, Chris, I I can go down a rabbit hole with um yeah Doctor Haloida, so I want to make sure that you're staying the course there. Yeah, sure. Well, that that answered actually quite a few questions there. Um, but I did want to get into you know you said again listening to the podcast and and kind of coming back to our boys, um. You, would you think that if a scenario, well, obviously our percentages are getting pretty low here. I think now past that 16% when you exclude family, when you exclude family members from that percentage, but you know, would you think that, or have you have any statistics suggesting that the person that uh, may have, if they were abducted, that they may have done something like this before. I mean, would, I mean, my my opinion and my my reasoning for that would be is it'd be a quite a quite a task to take three three kids if there was an abduction scenario. So would that have to be something where it wouldn't be like spontaneous? It would be more of they've done something like this before, premeditated. Yeah. So. Um, mm-hmm. I have no real data to make a. Um, Oh, uh, a well-researched opinion on sure. whether or not, you know, because again, I, I'm hesitant to make any claims about a potential abduction since, again, I haven't found super convincing evidence that that sure. was the case. Um, but I think your question in general, we can look at the statistics and talk about the statistics, but then there's the very common sense issue, like you have three energetic, adventurous teenage boys, what is the likelihood that somebody is going to be be able to wrangle all three of them up, disable them in some way, and take them off somewhere? You know, when you start thinking about the, the, the logical difficulties with doing that, it just seems less and less likely. Um, and so, you know, one thing I would say is that if there was some chance that they were abducted if that's actually what happened, I'm not saying that's what happened, but if it did, you might expect that somebody who abducted them was acquainted with them and was had their trust already and was able to convince them to go with them somewhere. Because just a stranger coming up to them and trying to like get all three of them at the same time seems very unlikely to me, if that makes sense. That actually is great. 100%. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good good way to look at. It. And and here's the thing. And this kind of goes back to the to your 19. And again, I would 
someday down the road, I hope to find somebody that is, I don't even know if they have historians from the 60s that, that, that come on podcast, but it'd be interesting to see the, the mentality of that. I mean, you obviously, it, you're in Hannibal, Missouri. I think at that time is around 10, 11,000 maybe population. So it's not like it's a big metropolitan area like St. Louis, Chicago. People know each other. So it makes you wonder how how wide of a gap or how wide does that, does their um, network spread out and, and how many people do they actually know? I mean, probably good chances are they knew everybody on the south side of town. So, I mean, I, I guess going kind of expanding on that a little bit more, would it have to be somebody, I, I, I don't know if you could even answer this, but I mean, it could just be somebody like the, you know, and I don't want to say this, but it's the first thing that came to mind is like the janitor from some school that that's uh, knew them because he saw them down the hallways and was like, hey, do you want to ride? I mean, I guess the question is, is that expansion can could, could be a little bit wider in a smaller community. Yeah, there are so many different factors um, to consider. I mean, what was... Uh, does anybody recall these boys' personality well enough? Like, how trusting would they have been if a stranger came up to them and asked them for some help? Um, you know, what were the social norms back then? Was it common for kids to, like, hitch a ride with somebody that they didn't really know? Right. Possibly more in that type of neighborhood or more um, in that time period. People aren't as trusting these days, certainly, I don't think. After yeah. all the highly publicized cases, it's not surprising right. why. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are so many things to consider. There are all those historical, cultural factors to consider. But then again, there's just sort of the common sense thing. If any three of them sense danger, like what is the likelihood that they, a stranger or somebody would have been able to round up three young boys? Yeah. I don't know that. Um I can't really comment on that. Sure. Sure. But yeah, yeah, you bring up a great point though. I mean, and we've actually had people that have, have pointed that out and I, we've never found any proof of that, uh, of what, uh, of this, but is that they have said before that they had no problem jumping in a vehicle with a stranger. We've never gotten proof of that, but we've heard that a couple times now that that, that's a scenario where they've, they've gone off with it with somebody they didn't know and jumped in a car. So, um, yeah, I mean, it came from Didi. I mean, the older sister, who was 16 at the mm-hmm. time did say that they did take rides they did hitchhike um and she said that in a newspaper article so you know whether the only reason that kind of led us down that path of, of course was the timeline the timeline is is always the most crucial area of it you know you have 515 they're on top of lover's leap you walk down lover's leap you're at 520 you got to be at a bus stop at 545 you're dirty you're covered in mud you're trying to get home as fast as you can which what chris is about a 10 minute walk Maybe. Give or take, yeah. Give or, yeah, give or take. And so at that point, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's just so many different uh, avenues. And, and I like that, you know, we're kind of like centering this with, with you, who's actually. So do you ever talk to the victims or is it always the person that was charged? Um, usually I speak exclusively with the defendant or the person facing whatever criminal issue they're facing. Um in rare instances, I've spoken with family members and once or twice with the victims of the incident. So that's rare. What would you, and I, I don't know, Chris, if you had something I was going to go ahead, go ahead. Back uh, in your, in your opinion, when you are 
talking with these defendants, the main purpose for you is to see that that something is is um, is mentally wrong at, at that point, or not firing on all cylinders, or I mean, how do you describe it in a clinical way that? I mean, I'm sure you've talked to murderers. Have you ever talked to a, a child abductor who has murdered a child? I mean, what is the psyche? What, what, what makes people do that sort of thing to these children? And and you know, is it some? I mean, I, and I, there's a lot of string theories out there that this is just something that, like you being attracted to a female or a male, it's the same thing. So I think that there's a stigma as well that surrounds by it in a, in, a, in a very lofty sense of it. There's, there's a normalcy that we understand, and then there's a, an abnormalcy that we don't understand. So what is in the psyche? Now, we've heard that you know, people that were molested molest, but from your opinion, the person that's actually studied it, you know, what, it, what are the things, what are the signs that we look for in, in these types of people? Like, what, why is it happening? So you've brought up uh, a couple different issues. I'll try to attack each one um, in turn. So... The first thing I'll say is that what I'm trying to assess depends on the type of evaluation I'm doing. However, in every single evaluation that I'm doing, one of the primary things I'm trying to do is assess whether or not there's some sort of psychiatric issue, meaning is there a diagnosable mental illness present? Um, Sometimes that's relevant to the question at hand, sometimes it's not. So a basic example would be uh, evaluating somebody for competency to stand trial. If I find out that they have a history of schizophrenia, they're not currently on medications, they're actively psychotic, meaning hallucinating, their thinking is disorganized, perhaps they have delusions about why they're in jail or about their attorney, that could be a clear-cut case that the person is incompetent to stand trial. Now, um, it's a little bit different when I do sex offender evaluations. Perhaps there will be a psychiatric disorder. However, it's usually much more difficult to establish a relationship between a psychiatric disorder and a person's sexual behavior. Except in the case, and this will be the second thing that I want to talk about, in the case of what we call paraphilic disorders. So um, I don't know if you've heard of these, but in our current edition of our diagnostic manual, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, there is a chapter called paraphilic disorders. This is most often what I deal with when I'm evaluating a sex offender. So a paraphilia refers to any sort of sexual interest um, that has to be intense and persistent, and it is not associated with normative sex. So an example of a paraphilia would be pedophilia. So these are individuals who are sexually attracted to prepubescent children. Perhaps another one you've heard of is something called exhibitionism. This is when folks are sexually aroused or have a sexual interest in exposing their genitals to people who are not expecting it. Um, So that's a paraphilia. Um, Our manual now makes a distinction between a paraphilia and a paraphilic disorder. So a person can have a strange sexual interest that you or I don't have and that is not normal, but it only becomes a disorder when it causes problems for that person, or if in engaging in that sort of sexual behavior, they harm themselves or somebody else. So um, so now pedophilia uh, is in distinction with pedophilic disorder. So hmm. uh, one could say that it's possible somebody could have pedophilia and it would not be a pedophilic disorder. 
if they're not distressed by those thoughts about children and they don't act on it. But as soon as somebody with pedophilia acts on it and has sex with a non-consenting child or any child, because children can't consent to that, um, they're considered to have a pedophilic disorder. Um, so all that being said, um, I'm oftentimes trying to determine if there's some sort of disorder that explains why an individual is engaging in a certain type of sexual behavior. Um, and not all people who sexually abuse children have pedophilic disorder. Sometimes it happens in the context of alcohol intoxication or some other sort of intoxication. Sometimes people do it opportuni opportunistically because they don't have a consenting partner and there are children around. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that um, sort of criminal sexual behavior does not automatically mean that there's some sort of mental disorder that explains it. And I think in the general public, um, there's probably an idea that pedophilic disorder is not a real mental disorder. It's just sort of a way to try to um, label somebody's sexual behavior to say they have a mental disorder. Hmm. Um, and in psychiatry, we do, you know, when we think of mental disorders, we commonly think of depression, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder. Rarely do we think of pedophilic disorder as being like uh, a mental disorder in the same way that schizophrenia is. Right. Hmm. Right. So they try to label it as a pathology, I guess, at that point, because it, it once again, it gets back into like a, a stigmatism, right? Like where I, I, when I was in school and I was studying a lot of Freud and, and because I'm a creative and I like to go down, I script write, I like to go down those paths. You know, at one point when you looked at different sexual preferences, at one point, like, you know, trans people, wasn't that listed as a pathology at one point and then it was reneged by psychoanalytics? I mean, wasn't that something that did happen recently? Yeah, so, um, well, and the same thing was true of homosexuality. Correct. That was in our diagnostic manual up until the 70s. Hmm. Um, so it took a long time a lot of activism and people within psychiatry advocating for its removal, for it to be taken out. Um, and there are still some areas where transgender issues are still in our diagnostic manual. So um, one of the paraphilic disorders still in the manual is um, the idea that somebody is sexually aroused by dressing up as a member of the opposite sex, mm, um, okay. which is different from trans what we think of as transgender now but it's still somewhat related and then there's a second diagnosis called gender dysphoria which is when somebody um identifies as the other gender and it causes them a lot of distress and possibly one way of alleviating that is to live as the other gender or to transition their um, physical appearance or what have you so um yeah i mean in, in certain spaces, uh, our diagnostic system continues to evolve as, um, as societal views change. And unfortunately, some people try to use that fact as evidence as to why our diagnoses don't make any sense and why they're all socially constructed, which right. um, I don't think is the case. And you, know, you see across cultures individuals who have a persistent sexual interest in children. I think pedophilia and pedophilic disorder are true things. Mm -hmm. um, they're, yeah, so. It was actually, the reason, one of the reasons why I bring it up is because 
I'm when I'm ignorant to something, I like to learn as much as I can so I can make a, an objective opinion about it, regardless if I agree with it or not. My personal belief does not matter when when science is involved, it, it, when when the mental structure of someone is involved. And I think that more people need to start doing this. Older people need to start doing this, and different generations need to start doing this. So I guess my follow up question, I, you kind of answered. You know, is it one class or race of people that you see all these types of, or is it just? dimensional it's it's every race it's every person you see it everywhere or is it one dominated type of like the reason why i asked this is like who if if it did happen to the lost boys who are we looking for what what kind of person is there some kind of profiling on it does does that exist um in, in a way that we are using profile in not a derogatory term but more of like a learning term like does it make sense to fit this person's meaning or you would never know you know something like that It's a very difficult question to answer, again, due to the lack of due to the lack of a potential suspect or the lack of significant evidence. You know, there's there's really well, nothing actually, I can say that would be let's, evidence based. Uh, let's go a little broader spectrum on that. What about in, in general? Is there statistics uh, when you have? I, I want to get it more into the specifics of, of a stranger abducting some uh, abducting a child. Is there? Is there? Uh, obviously, you know, you take male, female, you take you know, uh, Hispanic, white, black, all that scenario. Is there? Is there any 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 background or anything you can give on that? Yeah. So. Um... In again, today's world. <laughs> huh? What was that? In today's world, obviously, not in the 60s. It'd be a little bit different. Yeah. And unfortunately, there is there isn't evidence back from the 60s. Like the study, um, this large study that came out in 2015 is based on a database that was established well after the 60s. So we don't have data from then. Um, but what the study did show is that um, the victims of child abduction tend to be female. So about two-thirds of victims are female, one-third are male. Um, two-thirds of the victims were white. And uh, the most common age group was 12 to 17. About half of the abductees were in that age group. Mm. As far as the offenders go, what they found was that um, uh, around 70% of the offenders were male. Um, about half were 25 and younger. And then the next most common was 30% were 35 years and older. And two thirds of the offenders in their sample of 30,000 abductions were Caucasian. Well, what was the percentage again? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, 65, 65. Okay. two thirds of the offenders were Caucasian. Okay. Um, so again, it, it, those statistics, though interesting, I'm not sure you can really like create a profile from them. Sure. And sort of something that's useful to translate back to the 1960s in that small town. And this is something that I come across in my work. Um, so something that I do frequently is something called um, sexual violence risk assessment. And so there are these instruments that you can use to sort of score somebody and it puts them in a category and gives an estimate for the likelihood that they'll reoffend sexually if they were released in the community. Percentages are all good and fine, but they, it's, they don't take into account the idiosyncrasies of the situation and the individual that I'm evaluating. So I can use that 
um, risk assessment score, but then I also have to take into account specifics pertaining to that person and what might be unique about them that either raises or lowers their risk. Um, so it's hard to draw specific inferences in cases from general statistics. Um, and unfortunately, these statistics are so broad, like, you know, they don't, I, I don't think they're that helpful in this specific case. Okay. Sure. But it actually, it's, it's more than we had going into it because there's only so much of the guessing game that you want to play in, in these types of scenarios because at the end of the day, one of the reasons why we haven't reached out to the family members is because it's almost a regurgitation of something they live through. And just from a from a mental standpoint, it's not something that we wish to. <laughs> it's something that we 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 didn't want to have them relive it again, unless we had something that was more evident and clear of a path forward. And what I'm hearing today, actually, it it gives me hope. Um, it, and I know that no matter what the outcome for the lost boys, if they were doing something they love, like exploring and they met their fate, for some reason, I have better closure than, you know, one of these criminals out there that, that abducted them and killed them. I, I, I don't like that resolve. It, it just makes me uncomfortable because we hear it a lot. I mean, you, you know, you've studied crime. You've probably listened to a thousand podcasts about it. There is no closure, even if you have closure, um, especially when it's that. Because then, then your, your mind is going to... You know, I couldn't be there for him and all these types of, of, of guilt, you know, so survivor's guilt, if you will. And the one of the things that kind of stuck out to me is that there was females, females doing this. It's a lower percentage. Is there a reason why there's a lower percentage of females um, through all this stuff in, in your research? Does that because that for me, I don't know, it's kind of it it um, it drives me to learn more about why it doesn't really happen as much in females as it does males. Um, you're speaking specifically about the child abduction scenario? Uh, or um, pedophilia with, with females. Oh. Um, yeah, and, and I see that in the work that I do, both in jails and in my forensic work. Um, female sexual, sexual offenders are much less common. Um, and yes, you're absolutely right. So uh, paraphilic disorders are far less common in women, um, much rarer. And it's not totally clear why that is. Um, men tend to be more aggressive in general and also more sexually aggressive in general. Um, but it's not totally clear um, as to why there's such a, such a low prevalence of paraphilic disorders in women. Um, it's not something I've studied personally, but it's 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 definitely known. Out of out of all of these sex offender evaluations that I've done over the years, only one has been of a woman. So, um, very rare in my personal experience, and also uh, statistically much less likely. So, well, so I, I do. I we did send send uh, doctors some questions beforehand, and one of the questions I have on here, and I, I have a feeling you probably were did, may have had a hard time answering, but I'm going to ask this because if you did were able to answer it, I'm very interested to see what it was, and that has uh, about um, abduction scenarios in the '60s. Have you have you had any experience or any ability to look up how? 1960s abductions have changed from current day abductions. I know that's a, probably the toughest question on the list, but yeah, I there's just no data um, 
or evidence for me to even begin to speak about that. I, like I mentioned, uh, th the crime databases that we use to do these sort of analyses on abductions, I mean, they were developed way after the 60s. Um, well, and actually, Hill, let's let's get into that a little bit. Why, why is it, uh, why does it seem, is that something happen in the you know 70s or was there was there some sort of dynamic shift in in uh, molestation in, from a certain time frame in relation to what like as to why there's more data now right well yeah i mean was it was it one of those things where 60s and before it wasn't as prevalent was there some sort of dynamic shift in that or that that made this stuff that became more more available well, I think that um, I think that what you saw was, and, and I'm not sure if it's the case. I, I shouldn't speak on this too much, but you know, personal opinion. <laughs> well, well, what I can say is that as time went on and there were more states um, or more evidence of crime occurring across state lines, there had to be more concerted efforts in order to understand crime. And so um, the FBI has put together uniform crime reporting systems for the nation so that we can get an understanding of trends in different states and across the country. Um, and uh, the database that was used in this study to assess uh, child abductions is called the National Incident-Based Reporting System. Um, and that's something that came up um, in an effort to coordinate uh, data gathering between states regarding uh, the prevalence or the incidence of crime in different locations. So, you know, I, I don't know much about the development of crime reporting systems, okay. but sure. um, I, I do know that over the decades, there's been efforts to sort of consolidate and um, improve systems of reporting so that it's more standardized across jurisdictions. Um, and despite all that, uh, different states still use different uh, ways of writing up um, rap sheets. So like individuals' arrest histories, like those still differ across state lines and they use different systems. But there is an FBI reporting system where some of that data can go. So, um, you know, it's still not perfect. Uh, sure. And it, and the differences across state lines still makes it difficult. Like if you're looking at a rap sheet from one state to another, they're going to look different and it might be difficult to interpret them. Um, right. Yeah. So is that, I told you that that set of questions I was going to ask probably was going to be the toughest one out of all of them. So I apologize for that. Um, but uh, definitely I'll have to get back to that a little bit later. I have something else to add on to that, but we may do that after, after we get done talking here. Um, a couple, two other questions I have for you, real quick. Um, in one of them is pretty, pretty obvious, pretty, pretty black and white. Um, but the other one, it has to do if if a child molester abducted and was abducted and killed by somebody, um, is it likely that they would do it again? Would they do it something like? Would they be what's the word I'm looking for? Habitual? Or, or is is there a possibility that in maybe your scenarios you've had this happen where they've done it once? And they they've never done it again. It, it's it's that's a one and done. Or, or does it become a situation where you see more often than not that if they do something like this, they they do it again. So I don't have um, solid evidence from 
uh, peer-reviewed research on this topic. I also, let me think, I don't think I've personally evaluated any child molesters who murdered their victims. Okay. Um, so I don't have much personal experience with this either. Um, and it, uh, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain there's there's not good evidence. It's a rarity, right? It'd be a rarity, yeah. Yeah, it's it's the exception rather than the rule for sure. Um, so the the short answer to, to your question is I don't know. Okay. But if we want to extrapolate from other serial killers, sort of high profile serial killers, who again are not representative of child molesters, they're not representative of people who commit homicide um, at all. But, um, you know, I, I think you do see that with serial killers in that for some of them, they get some sort of excitement or emotional arousal from murdering, and that's the motivation for doing it. Um, so with some of them, I think you certainly see, like, uh, a compulsion, and it becomes this, this way of getting an emotional high. So they'll kill one person, and then they have to do it again and sometimes you see an acceleration of that like they need to do it more and more frequently to get that high um so i don't know it's possible but again i have i have no personal uh experience with sure. um child molesters who have killed their victims and also i don't have good evidence to answer that question but you can look at serial killers and you know maybe Maybe there's some relationship there. Um, sure, and you've had so so. Oh, go ahead, so I'm sorry, I'm going to follow that up. So, would we say from a from a statistic standpoint that somebody that is a child molester, it's rare that they would also be a homicidal psychopath as well? Yes. Okay. That is that is very rare. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that package right there. And I guess when you do that, right, I mean, when you look at all the serial codes that we had that actually did something like that, there's not a whole lot. I mean, people look at it like, wow, it's a lot. But it's really not. Like, when you look at the population, you know, to have something that, that's banded together like that versus just, like, you know, Ted Bundy who had uncontrollable rage issues um, versus, a, a you know, a John Wayne Gacy, which was strategic and, you know, planned and premeditated and had a whole, you know, game that he would play. So, I mean... <laughs> You know what, and that just brings one last question. I mean, like, I, I don't know of any serial killers today. I, I don't know what happened, and thank God whatever happened happened, right? Because <laughs> we don't really want to have these guys back. Um, but we don't see it as much anymore. I mean, unless unless it's just they're getting caught or something like that. Do you have any experience? I mean, because I know you've dealt with murderers that don't necessarily have anything to do with killing children, but it's still for my own edification. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, if you want to look at crime in this country in general today, and you want to look at homicide, I mean, primarily what we're seeing are handgun-related deaths, either in sort of domestic disputes are a common, um, common scenario in which homicide occurs, or in sort of like gang violence is another area where... Um, homicide frequently occurs um and it's typically committed with handguns so yeah we don't hear very much about serial killers anymore at all 
Um, there have been some hypotheses floated in some of the literature I've read, um, for example, that this um, phenomenon sort of arose after the development of the interstate system in this country. It gave psychopaths a way to um, murder in jurisdictions far away from where they live um, and dump, dump bodies far away from where they lived and then get back home and, you know, due to the poor interstate uh, communication um, between police agencies, it made it easier for serial killers to continue doing what they were doing without getting caught. And I think you you can see that in specific cases, like, uh, I forget what his actual name was, but I think it was the I... Oh, the I... The I-5 killer. Uh, yeah. There was an I-80, I think, too. Or I-70, sure yeah. <laughs> I think there were, like, I think there were multiple I-5 killers, actually. But, um, <laughs> but yeah... Uh, you know, nobody really knows why they're uh, why they're just not as common anymore. Or what's going on with that? Um, I'm think- sorry, I feel like I've strayed from the original question. No, um, you you haven't. I mean, I, I it's for you know. I mean, you you're like I said, you you live it, you breathe it, you interview it in your clinicals. I mean, you're with people that you know are potentially going to trial, will serve life sentences, will get death penalties. Have you ever dealt with? Uh, something like that and, and what that looks like. And I just think it's good for our audience to understand that because I, I, the one thing that I've learned over the last two weeks is like a lot of people don't understand law and they, a lot of people don't understand um, how it works, how the justice system works. But on the other on the other kick side of it, the flip side, the psychology behind things, like why do people do these things? Why do people feel this way? And and we're not asking we're not asking those questions. I mean, gun violence is terrifying, right? But from a mental illness standpoint, if somebody takes out seventeen people in a school, we want to get rid of a rifle. And I get it. I can have that. Why do you need an assault weapon? You live in America. I understand. We have police. At the same time, why aren't we asking the big questions of because that's what we see today. It feels like today it's the mass shooter. It's the killer. It's the spree killer. It's not so much this, you know, premeditated thing. It's more of like an impact impulse video game type of atmosphere where you can just walk in and just blow apart a couple people. Um, you know, like in, in Orlando, not too long ago, one of my pulse, amazing club. I, I lived in Florida, great people. Awesome. And then that happens and it's like, Oh my God, you know, why, why is this happening? Like, I guess I, I'm just always, I'm always like under the this uh, mindset that's like there's got to be more to it than just that, you know. And and so I don't know if that kind of helps the situation or. Well, well Frankie, I think you you you're, you kind of just hit on a point there. So it almost feels like there's been a social shift from being a serial killer behind the bushes killing to going into more of a mass murder sort of situation where you have a visual person that wants to be out and exposed and, and show who they are and kill multiple people. And maybe that's, that's, I hate to be so, so 50,000 feet above the air on this, but that maybe that's the new, the new serial killer is, is really kind of that. I mean, yeah, I mean, there are certainly uh, mass murders, which are generally defined as like killing more than four people at the same, in the same location at the same time. You're seeing a lot more of that these days. Um, And something I try to do in my individual evaluations with people is just to understand why, you know, uh, are they motivated by a paraphilic disorder? 
Are they motivated by hostility or aggression toward women? I'm speaking about rape right now or other types of sex offenses against adults. Like, is it a paraphilic disorder? Is it hostility towards a certain type of person or towards women? Um, or is it something else? Um, and I try to understand the individual motivations. And in every case, it's going to be something different. Um, we can try to lump and group things together to understand the motivations, but I try to look at everybody individually. Um, you know, I and I, I don't I don't recall the recent mass uh, murderers their specific motivations if they ever voiced having one. Um, but the guy in Las Vegas, uh, oh, yeah. you know, I don't really. I don't recall what he did. Uh, the Pulse one, I thought was was that related to religious extremism? Um, yeah, I mean, it had a lot to do with his identity as well. I mean, as far as like homosexuality, and I think dealing with that uh, from where his, you know, yeah. from his roots and, and the oppression, I guess that he felt um, when he was because he visited that club a bunch of times um, prior okay. to this happening. So. You know, those individuals are just it's trying to it's trying to get into the psyche because as we move across and people are like, well, why are we talking about this? Because I think it's important because understanding the psyche and understanding how if 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 Chris and I want to make a, you know, spend money, right, we're going to spend money doing a documentary in order to do that, we're going to have to have some kind of ground search or something that happens. Right. And so if we can rule out at some point because there's not a lot of evidence to abduction or, and like you've said, I mean, anybody looks at the case is like, well, who the hell could wrangle three kids? Like, I mean, John Wayne Gacy did it twice, but he <laughs> pretended to be a cop. <laughs> I mean, there was a reason why they got into his car. So understanding the psyche that in the mentality that goes into that, um, you know, you can also look at it from the broad side of, well, there's a lot going on in this city right now. They're building a whole, all the all the bridges are down. All the roads are down. Kids are everywhere. It's a perfect opportunistic killer at this point. That maybe you know someone got away and or, or whatever happens there. And I guess to to kind of round things off, and, and I'm just trying to understand more or less like who would do it, why they would do it, um, because it is the more you look at it, it is kind of far fetched. I mean to to think that this could have happened or it's not. And somebody got away with it and it was the perfect crime and no one's discussed it. And somebody knows something, right? There's always that kind of like that shadow, the darkness that, that sits on the town or something. So I don't know. It's not really a question. It's more like a statement. Like, you know, like I've always wondered too, like do, do these people like serial killers or murderers, the people that you've dealt with, or even child molesters, did they have, night terrors did they do weird things during dreams or 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 were sleepwalkers like stuff like that like is that like a sign of of things to come or or anything that relates to that or something that somebody can remember like yeah he's a weirdo he used to get up in the middle of the night and stab an apple and then go back to bed and you know something like that you know because that happens dude it's like <laughs> well nothing 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 that specific i mean again I'll just put the disclaimer out there again. I can't really right. apply things to this specific case because sure. I don't feel like I have enough evidence to make any sort of claims about the specific case. But there used to be something, we don't talk about it so, so much in psychiatry anymore, um, called the McDonald triad, which um, 
was meant to be predictive of future interpersonal violence um, and meant to be predictive possibly of future like murdering or serial killer um, type behavior. So the McDonald triad consisted of um, harming animals, setting fires and bedwetting um, okay. past childhood. And so it was thought that perhaps children who showed these sorts of behaviors as um, in youth would grow up to be more psychopathic, which maybe is a term worth discussing. Um, psychopathy is a psychological construct. Um, it's a collection of different personality traits. Um, and so the higher somebody scores, it's, uh, and there's a way of measuring psychopathy called uh, the psychopathy checklist revised. And it's felt that the higher people score on that, the more they uh, appear to be the quintessential psychopath. And common things for a psychopath are people who are callous and disregard other people's rights. They lack empathy, so they they don't. Um, it's not uh, it's not necessarily that they don't understand other people's emotions, but it's that those em witnessing emotions in other people doesn't really bring out emotions in them, and they also don't care if other people are experiencing emotions. Um, they can be impulsive. Um, they use aliases and can be charming. These are sort of like the quintessential psychopath traits. Um, also narcissistic a little bit, right? I mean. In some ways, yeah. Um, narcissists differ from psychopaths, however. Narcissists really care what other people think about them. Mm -hmm whereas psychopaths do not care what other people think about them. If a psychopath is going to be caught in a lie or go, is caught, um, caught by somebody uh, engaging in a behavior that they shouldn't, they're either gonna make up a lie to cover for it or walk away and not care or like leave their spouse or whatever. Like they don't have these the sort of emotional connections that uh, a narcissist can still have. Hmm. So, um, Anyway, uh, psychopathy is something that we often talk about in forensic psychiatry because it predicts future violent behavior um, and it can predict violent recidivism, those sorts of things. But um, again, I can't apply it to any situation in this case because there's nobody to look at to say, exactly. like, well, yeah. does that person show anything that might be consistent with somebody who would be violent? Again, we don't, I don't have a suspect to look at. So... Um, I, I I can't say anything about it, but you well, frequently find high psychopathy in like serial killers, um, violent offenders, and uh, presumably many of these mass shooters who are um, committing atrocities lately. Frankie, let's make a mental. Let's make a written note right now to send send him the uh, Ray Farrier letters <laughs> because yeah, we I think you look those over. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's an interesting deep dive. I mean, we'd love to have you love to have you back on the show too when we do get suspects, um, which which would be kind of like we we hide the names, but there are people of interest. We'll put it that way that have records that things that we can look at. But you know, after you after you really displaying, you know, after we know that we have there is a rarity with people that have uh, child abductions that have molested children. 
and then murdered them. There, there's a rarity there um, that that does occur. It does occur, but not as much or often. So it, basically what I'm saying is just because you molest children doesn't mean you're going to kill the child. And it, right. Very it, rare. It, it, yeah. So that really opens up a broad spectrum of another side of this of this story. Um, but yeah, Chris, I think that that, because the Wraith Farrier letters are definitely, like, what would motivate someone to do that? Like, especially the dates that he used to send the letters were so planned and, and, and in my opinion, um, premeditated. Like, I'm going to send this here, like, one well, year and let's fill Well, let's, let's fill him in on that real quick. So, one of the letters was sent on the anniversary date of when they went missing the first time. So, you know, when you put in the psychology, if you will, into something like that, I mean, it would make me feel like there was more, he was thinking about other stuff. Like there, there, there's more to the background because if you're, this guy has, this guy has no relationship that we know of to the family or the kids or anybody, but yet he's, he's got a, got some sort of, personal um connection to it that he needs to send a letter on the anniversary one year anniversary of them going missing it seems uh, that doesn't seem normal to me uh, something that happened a year ago that i was interested in i wouldn't remember that the oh it's the anniversary date i'm gonna send send some letter to somebody you know what i'm saying it's it's hard for i would think there would be more involved with it yeah <laughs> Yeah, it does seem strange. <laughs> I, yeah, so that's all we needed. He just needed yeah. the doctor to say it's strange. Yeah, but we'll send you those letters. We'll send you those letters because um, I we had we did have one forensic psychologist look at them. Uh, she didn't feel like there was anything really to them, um, but she also felt like he was a very mentally unstable person, um, in which okay. I think that's. That sort of analysis is definitely right up your right up right up your alley for for kind of getting a feel for. So we need to send you those letters to to see where see if you feel anything out of it too, because it's so weird a guy that lived more than an hour away from them and has no connections to Hannibal all of a sudden has this interest in in no real apparent background either. So anyway, um, but we'll get you those. Um, I will say, I think I, I got all my questions answered, Frankie. Um, this has been awesome because it's, I, I hate to say this and I hope it doesn't sound demeaning, but it almost been like psychology 101 course for me today because yeah. I'm learning things that I've never learned before. And I hope that that's something that we can pass along to our listeners because it, it even, I don't know if you were this way too, Frankie, but even listening to this, I was kind of applying different scenarios of, okay, um, we have some local suspects in mind. Does any of this kind of play into that? Um, the Ray Farrier stuff, obviously, does it play into that? Or the bolder, the broader stroke is 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 abduction off the table? Are we are we back yeah. to it being which a lot of I mean I'd say probably thirty five percent of our uh, discussion group says they're still in the cave. So I mean, there's definitely does it go back to that? Is it back to being they're in the cave? It's not an abduction. That's absurd. Or do you want to go even one step further and say, well, we did have that rarity of a serial killer that killed, killed teenagers in John Wayne Gacy. That was right around the area. I know we've eliminated him. I saw we're on a zoom conference call right now. I did see a look from, from Frankie out of that, <laughs> but, um, you know, we did have that, that serial killer that was in the air that was, quote unquote, in the area at that time. 
Um, do we do we need to keep him in the wheelhouse still? And then also, I'm Ray sure, Hatcher. Yeah, that's that's where I was just going. Uh, Charles Ray Hatcher is another guy, which I encourage you. I know you only got through season one, but um, there is a there is a serial killer named Charles. Are you familiar with Charles Ray Hatcher at all? No, I'm not. Okay, so he was a uh, 1950s through about 1980s. Uh, he killed kids and molested them, and we do have him in. Missouri during the time frame of when they went missing. Uh, we don't have him in Hannibal per se, but we do have him in Missouri during the time they went missing. So he is kind of up on our ranks and our percentages of somebody that we've kind of kept a close eye on because um, he doesn't have in, in you know the legal terms an alibi for that time frame of of, of when they went missing. So um, I don't know if that if me telling you that it gives you piques any interest at all of of. If we, ha- you know, if that could be somebody of interest to you or or not. Uh, well, I would have to know more sure. about the individual and what their sort of mo looked like and all sorts of things. Frankie, I have a feeling we're going to get a uh, you're going to get a text message from him uh, in a few days after he listens to that episode and be like, okay, we need to talk a little bit more about <laughs> Charles Ray Hatcher. <laughs> I was just looking at your text messages too. Um, it's local suspects, um, but yeah, I think I think um, Doctor Holoida has has really once again it's it comes back to the, the the ignorance and a lot of times when we use that word in a derogatory term and, and ignorance just simply means that we don't have enough information and we're trying to speak to it and that's what makes us ignorant is that well you need to know both sides of the story evaluate for yourself and come up with a a culpable um, opinion that that sheds light and educates, right? And so that's why instead of us trying to do all your work, yeah. you know, you coming on here has kind of created um, a lot of the, the, what we call, what I've always said, and, and I'm like I said, I'm a creative, but when I tell my designers that work under me or when I'm teaching, assumption is death. We cannot assume anything. We, we, need, we need facts and we need evidence. And, and until we have those, you know, it helps the documentary that we're creating here is so much broader and so much better because if we can rule something out, then it actually helps us kind of focus in on the area. Um, but like I said, I think Chris got to it. Once we send you, you know, a little bit more materials and if you want to come back on the show, we'd love to have you back just because, you know, maybe we find something and like, hey, you know, what does the doc think? You know, because <laughs> you'd be the guy who'd be like, nah, no, don't worry about it. You know, I'm like, all right, cool. We can just like scrape it away, you know, because <laughs> we have a tendency to go down the rabbit hole a lot on this show. Um, and, and we it, need and to it fill is. in some of these holes. <laughs> we do. We need to start burying things. Um, <laughs> it's just because you, you, you get so broad and then it's like, oh, God, you know, we have too many layers here. Let's start taking off the layers and get back to the core message of three missing kids at 515 on Lover's Leap. You know, what are the possible scenarios that could have happened? Um, and the fact that we're weighing all this and for, what is it, 53 years now, we're actually talking to a forensic psychiatrist that can lend some help in these areas and things that we can help with and, and get um, a little bit closer. So people don't have to do it. I mean, the information's been done. I do want to, as we get wrapped up, I, I, I know you did some, a lot of research. I don't want to miss out on anything that you looked up. Is there anything that, that we missed that you kind of, that you wanted to talk about? Um, I don't think so. Okay. Um, you know, I think I've provided the most useful parts of the published data on this issue. Um, 
Okay. At this point. Okay, I just yeah. wanted to make sure that we Perfect. didn't. I didn't want you to do a bunch of research and then like we didn't even get to that. So I, I wanted to make sure we covered all of our bases. Um, but Frankie, I, I think I think we're good. I think we'll definitely have you back on if you'd be willing to come back on later on um, as we find sure. some more information. Uh, but we definitely appreciate. It. Sure. Thank you for having right. me. Okay. Awesome. So as as we take a look at uh, ending this episode, um, uh, you know what Frankie does best. We do have an episode that that I've been writing and I've been creating, and it it's called "It Comes in Threes." And it, one of the things that we mentioned today was the three lost boys, but they're not the only ones that went missing in threes. There's a couple other cases, and on the next episode, we're going to explore "It Comes in Threes." From all of us here at the Lost Boys of Hannibal, I want to thank once again Dr. Haloida and my co-host with the mostest and the cat was actually in this episode, which was amazing. Um, Chris Ketters. By your lonely light again Is this road really the only way Can this road be taken Taken at all Can this road be taken Taken at all